0: Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Corbett Reports. You're tuned into Questions for Corbett here in August of 2022. And today, as promised, is going to be a mass media Q&A, specifically a question and answer session on my Mass Media, a History online course, available for purchase at newworldnextweek.com. I put out the call for people who have taken the course to ask questions about it, and I got a few responses. So let's go through them. First up is Aaron Smith who you might remember from interview 1702 as the host of the Subtle Cane podcast, which I was a guest on back in February of this year. Uh, I'm hoping we're planning to set up another conversation for next month, so you can look forward to that. But in the meantime, Aaron has taken the Mass Media History Online course and
1: had this question to ask about it. James, hi. Aaron Smith of the Subtle Cane podcast here with a quick question. Considering the deep and various philosophical implications of of the research that you've done in this course. I was wondering if you had any particular changes to your perception about what you do or any changes to the way you are going to go about doing what you do based on what you've learned through this research. And as content producers, what, advice would you have for those of us who are trying to share information in the alternate space of media? As always, very strong work, and thank you for what you do. I look forward to speaking to you soon.
0: Thank you for the question, Aaron. I appreciate it. Uh, To answer your question simply, I would say no. In fact, this course, or the research and preparation I did uh, in preparing this course, did not necessarily change my outlook on media generally or how I do my work in particular, precisely because I think I have always regarded the Corbett Report as fundamentally a media critique. That is why the Corbett Report exists. As I have explained several times in the past, one of the things that truly motivated me to start doing this work at all in the first place was noting that discrepancy between the information that I could find and verify for myself via online sources and what I was seeing presented in the mainstream media. That discrepancy was so vast that I felt that I had to go in to do whatever I could as some nobody here in Japan to try to help bridge that gap and provide some access to this information to people and to bring it to people's attention. So I have always fundamentally seen my work as a media critique, and so I have always very consciously thought about about the media, about its processes, how it works. I've been interested in media history. So not a lot of the information in the course was necessarily new to myself, I have known bits and pieces of this for a very long time, bringing it together and filling in the blanks and connecting the dots and hammering it down with specific references to specific books and things like that. That, of course, always helps to put things in a different perspective, so there was that aspect to it. But fundamentally, I've always been thinking about the media and what it is that I do and how I do it and... And all the things that come along with that. Well, am I encouraging people to spend more time in front of a screen by putting myself on the screen for them to stare at and things like this? Um, Again, I have no definitive answers to those types of questions, but I've always thought about them. I think the one thing that has demonstrably changed in about the same time frame as what we're talking about here with regards to my putting this course together and now, I have noticed that I am decreasingly interested in the news, Uh, the news cycle, and things that are presented to me as news, not only in the mainstream press, but even the alternative press. I'm just less and less and less interested in this, and more and more conscious and easy, uh, easy, uh, more capable of seeing through the types of ways that people frame stories to make them seem like a news story, when, in fact, they're just presenting an opinion or something like that. I've, I've become more attuned to that. And I don't know if that's a causal relationship there or a coincidental relationship or what the relationship is there. I'm not sure that's necessarily because I put this course together, but I have noticed specifically in the last several months that I'm just less and less and less interested in the media narratives of any sort, alternative or mainstream um, I don't know what that means even. Uh, as to uh, your the final part of your question about offering advice to people, um I I, I am loath to do that specifically because I'm keenly aware of the the specificity of people's different uh context, their environment, who they are, what they do. I think it really depends. I I why would you listen to me telling you what you should be doing with your, you know, You shouldn't have screen time or you shouldn't start a podcast or whatever. Why would you even listen to me on that? I think everyone knows internally, to some extent, what it is they should do or can feel that this is the right thing or this is not the right thing. So I I certainly leave it up to other people. Also, that would imply that I have it all sorted out myself. And it's just no question. And this is exactly... And I know people like to hear that and they like their media figures to speak like that. This is exactly what you need to do and why and one, two, three. Because people are often looking for some sort of replacement father or mother figure to tell them what to do. Um, But I am not that type of media figure. I have never presented myself as such and I will not now. So I am not going to... Uh, tell people, I'm not going to offer advice or tell people what to do with regards to their media relationship and what they should or shouldn't be doing in terms of media consumption or media production. You know best what is best for you. I I sincerely believe that. Um, Let's move on to a question from Erica, who wrote in, are there recognizable and consistent patterns in the phenomenon of innovations providing normal people opportunities to influence and communicate with other normal people subsequently controlled by the elite? Or is the development of each new technology, especially as it might relate to mass media, independent of how previous technologies have been developed and controlled, for example, is the sequence of, one, Richard Stengel's description of individuals' ability to influence and participate in the democratization of information, followed by, two, his position on disinformation, predictable and precedented? All right, that's quite a mouthful of a question, uh, Erica, and I, I do get what you're asking here and where you're coming from um, with this question. Just to put it in context for the audience, I think this is referring to something that I pointed out a couple of times during the course of the course, and also I tried to gesture towards in the Media Matrix series, was this broader historical trend that I think we can identify quite specifically in the Gutenberg revolution of the print pre- printing press and that providing access to a large swath of the population to start distributing information and that flowering in newsletters and pamphlets and other things that went viral in 16th, 17th, 18th century terms of, uh, of that term versus what has happened in the past few decades of the similar explosion of information through online. And people being able to communicate with each other directly in mass media form. Um, There is a parallel there. And as I pointed out, for example, in the Media Matrix, as well as in the course, the flowering of the Gutenberg revolution led to the contraction and gatekeeping system of the Morgan conspiracy, as I call it. Um, So is that happening again um, with regard to the internet revolution? And if so, is that Is that predictable and precedented? Um, And specifically with regards to Richard Stengel, I believe Erica is referring to this part of the lesson two from the course. So here is Richard Stengel holding up this special commemorative edition of Time Magazine. And Richard Stengel was then the editor-in-chief of the magazine. And in his editorial in that edition of Time Magazine, he wrote, there are lots of people in my line of work who believe that this phenomenon the uh, the fact that more amateurs are getting involved in producing con- content like on places like YouTube is dangerous because it undermines the traditional authority of media institutions like time. Some have called it an amateur hour, and it often is. But America was founded by amateurs. The framers were professional lawyers and military men and bankers, but they were amateur politicians, and that's the way they thought it should be. Uh, I don't know why the T is capitalized there. Sorry. Thomas Paine was in effect the first blogger, and Ben Franklin was essentially loading his persona into the MySpace of the 18th century. Poor Richard's almanac. Uh, The new media age of Web 2.0 is threatening only if you believe that an excess of democracy is the road to anarchy. I don't. And actually, this brings up a point that I wanted to say, I believe it was the end of lesson one. Uh, There was uh, someone who had a question about pamphlets and uh, the the incredible and profound effect they had on, say, the American Revolution or just the entire sort of uh, uh, flowering of whatever was happening in America. The the colonies at that time that actually made the American Revolution possible with a a notable example of common pain being uh, common sense by Thomas Paine being one of the greatest, um, uh, uh, the, the most well read most, <laughs> what am I trying to say? <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, if if you compare it to bestsellers of today, and you you adjust for the population size difference, it would be, I think, the twenty sixth best selling book of all time, or something along those lines. It was read by an incredible number of people. It was the viral thing of its day, and there was the question at the end of lesson one. Well, does that still exist today? And yes, I, I'm sure there are still. I mean, at the very least, there's the local weekly type of newspaper sort of things that are more underground i'm sure there are even more underground press sort of things but the the underground press of today isn't generally pamphlets and it's not printed it is online and you could have pointed the flowering of the blog blogosphere in the early 2000s as that that pamphleteer moment of the gutenberg 2.0 revolution right and that's exactly what richard stingle was gesturing to in 2006 You know, Thomas Paine was in effect the first blogger. Ben Franklin was loading his persona into MySpace. Blah, blah, blah. And you know, here it is. It's only threatening to time and other media institutions if you believe that an excess of democracy is the road to anarchy, but I don't. Well, okay. He obviously means anarchy in the pejorative sense, so we'll leave that to the side for the moment. But I get what he's saying. He means chaos and, and horrible, you know, uh, oh, that anarchy. Um, but I don't. I know that participation of the average person is important in the lead to flowering of wonderful things. Hmm, that's some amazing rhetoric, especially coming from the editor in, the then editor of Chief you know, of Time Magazine there in 2006. I wonder what Richard Stengel is up to today. I wonder what he could be saying about this flowering of uh, amateur access to the press and what this what this means, this development of media today. Oh, that's right. He's now writing books like Information Wars, How We Lost the Global Battle Against Disinformation, and what we can do about it. <laughs> yeah. The guy who said, this is such a great flowering of things, and it's not a threat. This is a great thing. And I don't believe this will lead to chaos or anarchy is now saying, oh no, people People are putting their own opinions out there and they don't have the gatekeepers. Oh no, this is chaos. This is anarchy. Ah, save us. Won't you save us, Hillary? <laughs> um, which is essentially what this is. Ah, yes, Richard Stengel, the then-editor-in-chief of Time Magazine back in 2006, when you became the person, Time Person of the Year, Um, in reference to YouTube and just generally the flowering of Web 2.0 and all of those social media outlets that gave a voice to the voiceless and all of this, the the realization of the information superhighway dream the democratisation of information and and richard stengel for one thinks this is this is going to be the good kind of not not anarchy this is going to be democracy or whatever his uh, 2006 perspective was but of course again as we have seen in the last few years Of course, he's one of the people screaming about Russian disinformation. We have to start censoring people and clamping down on the Internet. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Wait, this is going the wrong way. Let's start clamping down. So um, I think that's a a great microcosmic example of the macrocosmic phenomenon of the Gutenberg revolution becoming the Morgan conspiracy, the Internet information superhighway becoming the controlled web 2.0 of the Twitters and metas and Instas and what have you. Um, Now, I guess there are a couple of questions. First of all, I mean, is it precedented? Yes, I'm making the argument that it is precedented, but it is different in a sense that might seem trivial, but is not. The Gutenberg conspiracy to the Morgan conspiracy, that's something like a 475-year stretch. In that time, a lot of different things took place, and there was a lot of maneuvering back and forth. And I'd say the leverage of power between the average individual with access to the printing press and the authorities trying to control that printing press, there was a lot of jockeying for position. And you could argue at different times, there were different uh, uh, sides of that equation that were winning the battle, as it were, before it really got consolidated in the by the early 20th century. I mean, there were obviously signs of that beforehand. And I think for technological reasons, if not primarily, at least significantly, because of technological reasons. That is to say, the development of the rotary press and these other things that became more and more complicated, more and more capital-intensive, meant that the average person started to lose their ability to access the printing press, that power to be able to disseminate their voice. Um, Whereas back in, say, 18th century colonial America, it was possible for people to um, to finance the printing of a pamphlet or whatever, and the right pamphlet at the right time, put in front of the right people, like the right YouTube video at the right time. At least in the former pre-complete censorship of YouTube era, could get millions of views. It could go viral, right? And so there was that that phenomenon that did happen. But when the the technology itself became extremely expensive and cumbersome, it Necessarily? Question mark. Consolidated in the hands of the uh, a very oligarchical elite, elitist bunch, shall we say? Um, now, in the internet revolution, I would say the entire explosion and contraction that we witnessed over f- the better part of half a millennia, a millennium, when it comes to the Gutenberg to Morgan, we're seeing that within the space of thirty years, and. Again, I mean, there are some technological things that we could point to that might, technological innovations um, that have influenced that, but it's not quite the same thing, is it? So um, I I don't know, again, who is sitting down and who is consciously planning out, okay, we're going to make this the, you know, newsletter pamphlet revolution 2.0, and then we're going to make it the Morgan Conspiracy 2.0. Is it that level of detail, or is this just the logic of, the oligarchical system under which we're living. I tend to give more weight to the latter in that calculation rather than saying this is a conscious attempt to redo that history. But that does raise the question, which is part of your question, Erica, which is, is this a necessary condition? Is this absolutely locked, baked into the cake? This is going to happen every time with this technology? Or is it a contingent phenomenon? I think there is contingency here. This is not predestined. It is not, does not have to be this way. We can imagine a universe without contradiction in which the consolidation of power in the hands of a few corporations doesn't happen. I mean, it might be difficult to imagine, but it can be, at least without contradiction, held in our head. And um, also, I think that the different technologies give rise to different relationships between the public and the the ability to uh, to disseminate information. For example, I just, I mean, yeah, okay, there was a, there was the. When we talk about radio technology, of course, there was, there used to be a lot more ham radio operators and others who directly used the airwaves, um, but still, that was a fairly niche phenomenon, and I don't think any. Well, there aren't many examples of people who went went viral in the radio medium before it consolidated into. I Heart Radio and whatever it is today, right? Um, it was not such a popularly accessible medium. And television, surely. I mean, very few people. I mean, there's public access television, but that was seldom much more than a joke to most people. Uh, no, if you wanted to be on TV in a real sense, you had to be part of some large corporation or working for some large conglomerate of some sort. Um, so I don't think the radio and TV revolutions really fit into that pattern at all. I think, But I think there is a parallel between the printing press revolution and the internet revolution. So different technologies do play out in different ways. And the nature of the internet technology, the decentralized network that is the sort of backbone of this World Wide Web phenomenon that has taken off in the past few decades does suggest a a quite obvious way in which that could continue. It's really people's choices or the the limiting of people's choices that has led them into this corporate consolidation of control. Everyone is on the same five websites, what have you. Uh, That is a choice more so than it is some sort of necessity or necessary thing with regards to the technology. No, in fact, quite the opposite. Whereas the Gutenberg Press, as it evolved into the rotary press and these other things that became out of the hands of the average person is quite actually the opposite phenomenon when you think with the internet. No, actually decentralizing right down to the individual to individual level is not only possible, but is increasingly heading that way. It has to be actively headed off at the pass and actively gate kept and roadblocked by corporations that obviously have it in their interest not to uh, not to allow that to flower, which is why, for example, as I documented back in my Solutions Watch episode on really simple syndication, exactly why you have, for example, Google taking over some of the biggest RSS feed, um, uh, broad, uh, consolidator broadcasters um, of the previous generation of websites and basically junking it. Because RSS, no, 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 don't allow people to connect directly. No, now you're going to have to go through our social media um, platforms. So there, there, I think there's a definitely a conscious attempt to limit people's ab- abilities so that they will be forced into a, a sort of corporate vision of the web. But that absolutely is not how this has to go. And, and there are a lot of people working on very innovative ways to break through that and to really reach that, uh, that, that flowering of, of direct communication that was always the promise of the information superhighway. I would say it's not written in the stars, Um, There is still history to be written on this front, um, but it involves the very uphill battle of essentially, uh, as usual, teaching people about their own power. It is your choices that will determine how this technology plays out and what happens in the future, and they cannot stop an idea whose time has come. Has the time come for true decentralization? Not if people don't even understand what that concept is, surely. Anyway, that's a very thought-provoking question, Erica. I appreciate you bringing it up. Let's move on to a question from Peter, who uh, wrote in to say, uh, do you think the enormous advance of mass media technology and technology in general is a positive or negative thing, influence factor? Thank you for the question, uh, Peter. The answer is yes. Okay, moving right along. Uh, <laughs> okay, all right, all right, No joking. Um, uh, I, 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 I don't mean this in a disparaging way as to what it is you're asking, but I think that we have to, we really have to think of this question on a much deeper, more structural level. It is not enough to simply ask whether mass media technology is positive or negative. Um, As if there's some sort of scale that we can use to measure that and if it comes out more negative than positive, then we'll, okay, let's do away with media technology. If it comes out more positive than negative, then okay, let's embrace it. I don't think it is that kind of calculation, and I think that does an injustice to the nature of what it is that we're dealing with. Uh, we really have to honestly, honestly look at what this technology is and what it represents and where it comes from in order to understand what our relationship to that technology should be. And that was something that I quite deliberately tried, at the very least, to put into, say, even in the Media Matrix uh, documentary series, I did try to gesture towards that, at least at the end of part three on Into the Metaverse. But there's a more fundamental perspective, one that sees media not as a technology, but as the expression of our need as human beings to connect with others, to fight off our original state as beings cast alone and naked into the world through communion with others. But as our technology of communication begins to create its own world, and as we increasingly place ourselves inside that media world, we would do well to ask ourselves, at what point do we lose our essential nature as human beings? Once we're jacked into the metaverse, are we still homo sapiens? Or will we have become homo medias? Have we considered what that means? Do we care? Perhaps it's no surprise that the curved mirror of the Gutenberg conspiracy has led us here, to the black mirror at the doorway to the metaverse. Perhaps we were always destined to end up here. Perhaps this is an expression of a fundamental human urge. Yeah, you might have blinked and missed it, but it was there, and those weren't just words that I was throwing in. That was something that I really mean and I hope people will cogitate about, which is the question of where media arises from in the first place. This isn't just some technology that was cobbled together and we can do with it or without it, and it's our choice. No, this is an expression of something fundamental about humanity itself, that we as social creatures need to communicate with others, and we will find ways to extend our ability to communicate with others. That, I think, is... Pretty inevitable for the human species to do, and so in some sense, media is an extension of us; it is an expression of that fundamental desire to connect with others, and uh, it not only is it part of us, we are part of it in a sense um, as i said uh, the the media is extensions of our bodies, extension of our voice or extension of our our physical bodies or extension of our thoughts out into the world and I think that's pretty much always going to be part of humanity and what we do um and i think as a corollary to that uh, if if we were to somehow if we did just discard this technology or some you know 2012ish apocalypse asteroid whatever suddenly took out our ability to use this technology and we all went back to the stone age i think we would eventually get back to this part, part point we would that same manifestation of the urge to communicate would manifest in similar ways and people would develop similar technologies to do so. I think, again, this is, in some sense, it's part of what it means to be human that we want to communicate with others. So I think this is why I, 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 as I said in my recent Solutions Watch on Delete Social Media, I don't think neo-ludditism is the answer, at least not for the vast majority of people. Um, it's like asking people to sever a limb or some part of them. No, we, we need, uh, well, I won't say need, but we, again, this is not some sort of thing that has been engineered into us. We have a desire to communicate with others on a large scale. So the question is, I think, really, where, where does this lead and what is the balance that we can or should or could achieve with regards to this media technology. Because another fundamental point that I I stress a few times in the course is the McLuhan-esque idea that media is is not just some neutral tool. It is not just a technology that we invented that we then use or decide not to use. It uses us. It shapes us. It makes us into certain types of people. And as I gesture there at the end of into the metaverse, are we becoming Homo Medias? Are we becoming some sort of different thing based on this new, ever increasingly invasive and immersive technology that will start to dictate the way that we are? I've I've mentioned this in a few interviews now. I will reiterate it here. I think the question of uh, of how we interact online with others and We start to become a different type of person when we interact in certain media environments um, because of the the media itself. In in a certain sense, uh, kids who grow up in and have been immersed their entire life, not just as digital natives, but social media natives, will start to have those types of social media interactions in their, quote-unquote, real life, in their unmediated life. That will be the way that people actually communicate with each other. People of my age and older, presumably, having grown up without social media, will understand that what you the way that people interact online is not the way they interact in the real world. But that will start to blur as people who grow up in social media start to do that. So the real question here is, I think, the question of of balance? Is that even achievable? What is the balance? How much of our lives should we spend in mediated reality? And what types of mediated reality are going to change us? And do we want that change? Um, some incredibly deep questions, and ones that I, again, I, I am not the guru on the cloud telling you what to do with your life. I am not going to answer these questions for you. But as I said, as I made the points explicitly at the end of lesson three of the Mass Media History course, these are the questions that we need to be talking about. We need this conversation, and I'm not seeing it. <laughs> this conversation being broached in a lot of places. More, <laughs> I I think that actually speaks to my growing disinterest with the news, news feeds, and all of this. I, I, again, I don't think this is addressing it on the structural level. So I I I, I appreciate the question, Peter, and I think you're I. I I understand where that question is coming from, but simply evaluating is technology, this media technology, is it a net positive or negative, I think is kind of asking the wrong question. It's more like a question of how do we fruitfully uh, use or at least express our inner desires for communication with others in ways that satisfy us as human beings. And I think there are certain things that can be said about humans in general, I think there are certain things that can be said about people living in particular social contexts, and then there are things that can be said about particular individuals. So one-size-fits-all solutions for everyone is probably not achievable nor desirable. Anyway, I, I hope that at least starts to answer your question and hopefully gets more people thinking about the question and trying to answer it for themselves, which I think is the real point. All right, finally, we're going to turn to a question that I got in from my good friend and my guitar teacher, Vinny Caggiano, who you will remember from several appearances on the podcast before, as well as our uh, podcast that we do on, over on his channel, on Odyssey. Uh, but he has taken the course, and he had this question specifically to ask. Hey there, James. This is Vinny, and I think you know which Vinny this is. In any case, uh, I, I've never really submitted a, a question to Corbett officially on the website, and I thought I'd do that now because I did watch your um, media course very closely, and it was really, honestly, mind-blowing, really great, and I learned so much from it. I have a question because you hadn't mentioned um, the practice of embedded recording that began to occur during the Gulf War under Bush I. And I'm just wondering, what do you think the practice of embedded reporting did in terms of shaping the people's perception of the Gulf War? Thanks for taking the time to answer. I really appreciate all the work you do. Take care. Thank you, Vinny. I very much appreciate the question, and it is very much in keeping with the spirit of the course, because as people who've taken the course know, uh, I do spend a lot of time going through that history, talking about news and the conception of even what news is, let alone how it is reported in the different manifestations of this mass media technology as that develops. It's very interesting to think about how our conception of what the news is develops in each different iteration of technology and in the different historical environments and contexts in which they're placed. So, yes, for the last few decades, this has been a feature of war reporting. Um, we noticed it really at in the first Gulf War, and then really with Afga- Afghanistan and Iraq in the past couple of decades, there's been an increase in the number of reporters being embedded, embedded journalism. So reporters riding along with military teams as they do their operations, and then reporting from the war scene in that way. And obviously, I would like to say that for the most part, I think the the Corporate Report audience will probably get why that is probably not a good idea, or at any rate is going to present a very skewed version of events. But if you would like a greater elaboration on that, uh, Patrick Coburn wrote a very, I think, thoughtful piece from back in 2010 on the dangers of embedded journalism that I will commend to your attention. Of course, I will link it in the show notes for today's episode, so I hope you will check it out and read it in its entirety. I think it is worth reading. It's got some interesting reflections from a reporter who has done real reporting in very dangerous war zones in a non-embedded way, reflecting on the nature of embedded journalism, but also, as I say, in a thoughtful way. He doesn't simply dismiss it. There is a recognition of the fact that doing genuine reporting and journalism in a war zone is inherently exceptionally difficult and dangerous, and there has to be some sort of... um, some sort of accommodation for that in some way or other. And embedded journalism is one of the ways you could do that, right? Well, as uh, Coburn writes, many allegations against the system of embedding journalists, mainly with the American or British military, are unfair. Accompanying armies in the field is usually the only way of finding out what they are doing or think they are doing. Nor is there an obvious alternative way for correspondents to operate today. Given that al-Qaeda and Taliban target foreign journalists as potential hostages, it is impossible to roam around Iraq or Afghanistan without extreme danger. But having made those concessions, uh, he does then go into the the sorts of problems, not just the, the surface level, but the structural problems with embedding, noting, um, for example, it produces a skewed picture of events journalists cannot help reflecting to some degree the viewpoint of the soldiers they are accompanying. He talks about embedding putting limitations on location and movement. You are going to be wherever the forces are, which means that the correspondent embedded with the American or British military units is liable to miss or misinterpret crucial stages in the conflict. Um, And then after a very lengthy discussion, he summarizes by saying, I used to get a certain amount of undeserved applause at book festivals by being introduced as a writer who has never been embedded, as if I had been abstaining from unnatural vice. Embedding obviously leads to bias, but many journalists are smart enough to rumble military propaganda and wishful thinking and not to regurgitate those in undiluted form. They know that Afghan villagers interviewed in front of Afghan police or U.S. soldiers are unlikely to say what they really think about either. Nevertheless, perhaps the most damaging effect of embedding is to soften the brutality of any military occupation and underplay hostile local response to it. Above all, the very fact of a correspondent being with an occupying army gives the impression that the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, countries which have endured 30 years of crisis and warfare, can be resolved by force. End quote. Uh, Once again, please do read through that article. I think it is worth your attention if you're interested in this issue, but I think raising, raising the right kinds of questions, it isn't just a question of sort of skewing the report in favor of the military. It's that you only see what the military sees. You only understand the conflict in military terms. It, it starts to affect not only the way you report, but what you report in the first place. And obviously that ends up affecting the audience and their perception of what that war is about or how it is being waged or in what way, etc., etc. A point that was also made by Robert Fisk, uh, a veteran journalist who has spent a lot of time in the Middle East who had his own opinions about embedded journalism, which he shared in a 2008 conversation about
2: his work. This glomming across of journalism into power, um, I saw it very clearly, actually, in 1990, when American troops were gathering in Saudi Arabia for the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, to liberate Kuwait from Saddam. And the funny thing was, lots and lots of, Journalists were turning up, especially for America, midwest guys who 'd never been abroad before, in military costume. One guy turned up from actually Denver, um, wearing shoes with camouflaged leaves on <laughs> camouflaged <laughs> with leaves no seriously i mean you, if you 've seen a desert and even in a picture you 'll know that there aren 't an awful lot of trees you know there um, but the funny thing was too that you know I go out in the, in the desert and you know, I wasn't embedded at all, i just drive up to American troops or British troops and they'd talk to me because they were lonely mm. and they were tired and they were wet and they <coughs> had food poisoning mm-hmm. all the time. I always bring piles of newspapers to give them and packets of cigarettes and you know. and. Um, they'd talk and they were all writing, they were trying to write poetry. Mm-hmm. One guy in Abrams tank had worked at a huge board game about flying between planets mm-hmm. and knowing when they could refuel their spaceship. It was, of course, about being a tank crewman in a desert, not mm-hmm. knowing if he'd get a resupply of fuel, mm-hmm. as I quickly realized. And these were quite literary people. Yeah. A British guy was trying to write poetry. It wasn't very good, but he was trying. And it suddenly dawned on me that all the soldiers wanted to be journalists, and all the journalists <laughs> wanted to be soldiers. There was something there which was very dangerous getting loose. Now, that
0: is actually an exceptionally telling little anecdote, isn't it? About this whole phenomenon of media and its relationship to reality, or lack thereof, and how the two interact and interplay with each other. You've got these reporters dressing up in what they think, well, I'm a soldier now, I'm a soldier reporter, so I'm going to dress in my camo gear (laughs) for the desert, which has nothing to do with the actual terrain, Um, because, again, they're going off of media representations of war. And then you've got the soldiers who want to be journalists or writers themselves because they don't want to be doing the actual drudgery of the work they're in. No, they want to be in media. <laughs> I mean, there's there really is some interesting crossing of the lines going on there, um, which I think starts to broach the much deeper issue that's going on here. Because yes, as I say, the Corbett Report crowd Uh, It's not exactly rocket science. I think we can all understand how embedded journalism and the practice thereof certainly does skew the representation of these different wars and thus skews our perception of them back at home. But it's actually much, much, much deeper than that, isn't it? And this is where we start to question that blurring of the line between reality and the virtual the media representation of that reality, and how the two interact and interplay with each other. Here's, here's where things get really deep, and here's where I potentially lose the non-philosophically inclined, but I'll do it anyway. Here's a statement for you. The Gulf War did not take place. Now, I know what you're thinking. Probably something along these lines, Right? Uh, CNN's Carl Rochelle is, is here with me, just came up. Uh, Carl, I know we can't be very specific given these restrictions, but uh, within those parameters, what did you see?
1: Well, what I saw, I, I didn't see anything hit. I looked very almost straight above us. There is a vapor trail coming from my right to my left, and there's a cloud of uh, something. It looks like it might have been an explosion, a cloud. Uh, well, I'd say... It, 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 it,
0: Yes, of course, if you've been around in the conspiratainment space for long enough, you have undoubtedly seen the unedited behind-the-scenes footage and takes of Charles Jaco and his reporting from Saudi Arabia back in 1991 during Operation Desert Storm, or was it really from Saudi Arabia? And of course, that is the tenor of much of the misreporting in the conspiratainment space that has taken place around that particular footage and the other footage that has been released. Look, it's all fake. It was done on an Atlanta soundstage. It's a blue screen behind them with fake palm trees, and it's all uh, a, a show. It's, it's not... None of it was real. None of it really happened. Well, maybe not. In fact, as Aluminum Theory demonstrates in a video uh, that was filmed at the Darhan International Hotel in Saudi Arabia, Uh, on the specially constructed plywood stage that they had set up there for the TV crews. You can see it from different angles and different shots um, from even different networks, etc. That was where they were broadcasting from. So uh, there was a sense of reality to it, but there's clearly also a sense of unreality to that footage, isn't there? And that's really where things start to get interesting. No, saying that the Gulf War did not take place or saying that that footage is fake, is not saying that that didn't exist or it was all done on some soundstage in Atlanta. No, 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 it's a deeper issue than that. It's calling into question the nature of war itself in the media saturation that we are steeped in these days and whether what took place in the Gulf in 1991, which really did take place, real people actually died, yes, but was that, was that war Is that what we call that? And and what does that mean in this day and age? Actually, a much, much more deeply philosophically interesting question than you might think. And if all of these questions about the virtual and the real and simulation and simulacrum start to evoke certain ideas, that's because you are good students who were paying attention in lesson three when I was talking about Jean Baudrillard. And in case you weren't paying attention, let's get into it. Because, as you may or may not know, Jean Baudrillard wrote a series of essays that got collected and compiled in a book which was then published, The Gulf War Did Not Take Place, (laughs) which, of course, is the English translation available there on archive.org. The link will be in the show notes. So let me go in and borrow this book so we can at least read some of the excerpt together. Although, I must say, uh, as usual, Baudrillard exceptionally dense. So let's read a bit from the introduction, which makes things in a little bit clearer, more easily understandable language. Let's switch to one page view. So for people who don't know, again, this was a select a collection of essays that were published in La Le- Liberation in early 1991. The first essay was published on January 4th, 1991. So after the UN resolution, Uh, had been approved, but before any bombing or anything had commenced, before Operation Desert Storm actually took place, that was published uh, on January 4th of 1991, and it was called The Gulf War Will Not Take Place. (laughs) A rather bold statement, which seemed to be proven untrue by subsequent events, right? Well, the Gulf War started, and then it was on CNN 24-7, so it must have been taking place, right? Well, in order to make sure that people understood what he was saying and that, he no, he was not going to retract what he said, he was going to double down on it, in early February, as the war was taking place on live TV so people could watch it, he wrote, the Gulf War, is it really taking place? <laughs> and then, at the end of February, after it was all done and in the history books, he finished it up with, the Gulf War did not take place. <laughs> A very provocative and interesting concept, so let's take a look at it, or at least start to broach the question of what this really means. So again, reading from the introduction by the uh, translator here, uh, I think he puts it in perspective nicely. He says, at the time, as this was taking place in 1991, the TV Gulf War must have seemed to many viewers a perfect Baudrillardian simulacrum, a hyper-real scenario in which events lose their identity and signifiers fade into one another fascination and horror at the reality which seemed to unfold before our very eyes mingled with a pervasive sense of unreality as we recognized the elements of Hollywood's script which had preceded the real, the John Wayne language and bearing of the military spokesman, and the signifiers of past events faded into those of the present, the oil-soaked seabird recycled from the Exxon Valdez to warn of impending eco-disaster in the Gulf. Occasionally, the absurdity of the media's self-representation as purveyor of reality and immediacy broke through. In moments such as those when the CNN cameras crossed live to a group of reporters assembled somewhere in the Gulf, only to have them confess that they were also sitting around watching CNN in order to find out what was happening, television news coverage appeared to have finally caught up with the logic of simulation. It was not the first time that images of war had appeared on TV screens, but it was the first time that they were relayed live from the battlefront. It was not the first occasion on which the military censored what could be reported, but it did involve a new level of military control of reportage and images. Military planners had clearly learnt a great deal since Vietnam. Procedures for controlling the media were developed and tested in the Falklands, Grenada, and P- Panama. As a result, What we saw was, for the most part, a clean war with lots of pictures of weaponry, including the amazing footage from the nose cameras of smart bombs and relatively few images of human casualties, none from the Allied forces. In the words of one commentator, for the first time, the power to create a crisis merges with the power to direct the movie about it. Desert Storm was the first major global media crisis orchestration That made instant history. The Gulf War movie was instant history in the sense that the selected images which were broadcast worldwide provoked immediate responses and then became frozen into the accepted story of the war high tech weapons, ecological disaster, the liberation of Kuwait. In case anyone missed the first release, uh, CNN produced its own edited documentary, CNN War in the Gulf, which was shown on TV around the world. Within weeks of the end of hostilities, Time Warner produced a CD-ROM disc on Desert Storm which included published text, unedited correspondence reports, photos, and maps in the form of a single hypertext document. In their publicity, they described this interactive media disc as a first draft of history. In the precession of simulacra, Baudrillard took as an allegory of simulation the Borges story in which the cartographers of an empire draw up a map so detailed that it acts exactly covers the territory. Thanks to the geographical data collected by the US Defense Mapping Agency, remote corners of the American empire such as Kuwait already existed on hard disk. Just as it marked a new level of military control over the public representation of combat operations, so the Gulf War displayed a new level of uh, military deployment of simulation technology. Technological simulacra neither displace nor deter the violent reality of war. They have become an integral part of its operational procedures. Virtual environments are now incorporated into operational warplanes, filtering the real scene and presenting aircrew with a more readable world. The development of flight simulators provided an early example of the computer technology which allowed the boundaries between simulation and reality to become blurred. The images and information which furnished the material for exercises and war games became, become indistinguishable from what would be encountered in a real conflict. The same technology now allows the creation of simulated environments— in which to train tra- tank crews, and even the possibility of connected simulators in which virtual tank battles can be fought out. An article in the first, issued of Wired, uh, first issue of Wired recounts developments in the use of networked simulation machines as training devices. Current research aims to achieve what is called seamless manipulation in which the seams between reality and virtuality will be deliberately blurred and real tanks can engage simulator crews on real ter- terrain, which is simultaneously virtual. Within months of the end of the war, army historians and simulation modelers had produced their own multimedia, fully interactive, network-capable capable digital simulation of one of the tank battles from the closing stages of the conflict. Armchair strategists can now fly over the virtual battlefield in the stealth vehicle, the so-called SimNet Flying Carpet viewing the 3D virtual landscape from any angle during any moment of the battle. They can even change the parameters, give the Iraqis infrared targeting scopes, for instance, which they lacked at the time. This is virtual reality as a new way of knowledge, a new and terrible kind of transcendent military power. Now, the rest of that preface goes on in much greater detail to elaborate on Baudrillard's point and what it really means, because obviously it's a very provocative title, The Gulf War Did Not Take Place. Yes, it did. We all saw it. And of course, are you saying people didn't die? But uh, there's a lot of very important points about real and hyperreal and the merging of those two and what the media event of the Gulf War actually means. Was that a war? And in what sense? Um, there's actually some incredibly interesting questions there, which the preface goes on to elaborate in greater detail. And then when you really are ready to get into the weeds, then you get into the Baudrillard text itself, which is characteristically dense and very thought-provoking, but it takes some time to work through. So um, I leave that uh, as as a gem for you to discover. There's a lot in there. And uh, trust me, I will have more to say about some of the topics raised in this work. Uh, In the future, because I think they do go to the heart of the real questions that we start to move into in the increasingly simulated reality of increasingly mediated, the mediated world that we are stepping into, in some cases quite literally stepping into when we start to talk about the metaverse. So, some very important questions, which, uh, Vinny, I'm sure you did not necessarily uh, expect when you opened this can of worms, but. you know, it's been it's been at least a week since I've recommended a book to you, so I'll recommend this one. It's a, it's a short 90 pages. It's just a very, very, very dense 90 pages, so have fun with it. Um, but yes, uh, the idea that the Gulf War was a TV war is not exactly new. In fact, it's been handled in more straightforward and less philosophical ways by others, talking about the Gulf War as a media event. There have been books published on it. Um, even, even Chomsky, straight-laced... I'm not a postmodernist, Chomsky, um, has talked about, well, does what happened on TV there, does that actually, was that a war? My my understanding of war involves two sides, uh, two e- relatively equally matched sides shooting at each other on a battlefield, but that's that's not what that, that's not what happened there in 1991. So even he would challenge the validity of the Gulf War as a war. But anyway, as I say, a lot more to say about that. And at the very least, yes, the nature of the embedded reporting and the live twenty four seven coverage in the on the brand new CNN news network that, that remember that was a new idea at the time of twenty four seven coverage of this unfolding news event. the Gulf War really made CNN into cNN um, so it as a TV event hey there was entertainment to be had not only the Charles jaco style entertainment but also i'll throw in as a added bonus a little gem of Hitchens versus Heston um, on the Gulf War. Uh, And this was back in 1991, when before Hitchens became the Hitchens of the 2000s, where he was yay, you know, yay, yay war. This was anti-war Hitchens versus pro-war Heston, um, and includes some, some nice exchanges, the type you would expect. It's It's not every day you get to debate Middle East policy with Moses himself, (laughs) as Hitchens remarks. It's an interesting debate. And also, another reflection of something that I've had cause to reflect on from time to time and mentioned on the podcast before, it's another example of those times when you look at a piece of media that has preserved a moment in time from 30 years ago, a different media landscape in which you could have a half-hour, I want to say, fairly in-depth debate that goes into some degree of substance about the issues, um, more so than you would see today. Uh, that conversation could not happen on CNN today. It would be broken down into probably two or three minutes of, okay, what do you say? What do you say? All right, here's some flashy graf- graphics, now let's move on. This seems like a relative fresh of breath, air, breath of fresh air from 1991, where people were allowed to talk for minutes at a time, even. But that's actually pretty ironic when you look at. Uh, say, Postman, writing his TV critique in the 1980s, uh, talking about precisely this type of Hitchens versus Heston debate as being the absolute nadir of human civilization. This is stupid. This is not a debate. This is uh, a sign of the instant quick fix media culture that we're steeped in. Now, from our perspective in 2022, we can look back at that one from 1991 and go, wow, there's so much time and space for people to make points. It's It seems so unrushed. Wow, imagine that. So the, the the revolution will not be televised, but the devolution will be televised. Go watch interviews of people from the 1950s, 1960s, man-on-the-street interviews with people speaking in coherent, multi-clausal sentences, grammatically correct, that actually make sense, versus the type of communication that passes for communication in 2022. There is a documented phenomenon that is happening there, and media has a part to play in that. So anyway, there's a lot, a lot of different issues. I'm glad to have uh, had overwhelmingly positive feedback from the people who have taken this course so far. Um, Again, if you have not done so, if you did enjoy the Media Matrix series, um, but have not looked at the course itself yet, I highly suggest it. I think it will be worth your time. There is a lot more information in the course than could be presented in the one hour of the documentary. So Once again, it's a three-part course. Uh, It's broken into three lectures, and uh, the lectures are two and a half, two to two two and a half hours each. So it adds up to about six and a half hours of lecture. Um, It includes the transcript of the entire lecture, hyperlinked transcript with links to all the sources of everything I talk about, of course, as always, as well as a study guide that includes recommended reading and includes summaries of the key points and takeaways. And you even get the PowerPoint slides as well, in case you want those. Um, As well, lots of information, and I'm glad that people have gotten something out of it. I hope you will, too. On that note, I think we're going to leave it there for today, um, and looking forward to continuing to ponder and talk about these ideas as I move forward with this media venture known as the Corbett Report into the future. Thank you for being here with me. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com.